Um, okay, and now I'll just hand you over to our speakers. I have the page just in case I get the names wrong. So, um, Martin Doyle and Carlo Gabler. Thanks very much. Good morning. This is Martin Doyle. My name is Carlo Gabler. And we, it was going to be a different event. Uh, Michael McGee, the author of Closer to Home, which is a, a novel set in, in um, Belfast, and Twinbrook was going to be uh, joining us, and I was going to very, very skillfully merge both books together, because Michael McGee's novel is set in Belfast in 2013. Dirty Linen is a psychogeographic memoir about events in the parish of Tully Lish inside the so-called, aptly called, Murder Triangle, um, which is in Northern Ireland, where a lot of people were killed, a lot of Catholics mostly were killed during the uh, so-called Troubles. Anyway, all that's gone. My beautiful notes, I've just, you know, we only learnt this morning that Mr. McGee has a, has a, a private problem and wasn't able to join us. But there's one thing that I can um, keep from my original notes, um, which will help set up this conversation. Um, I don't know um, if any of you know this, but uh, there was a war of independence um, in Ireland, and um, the country was partitioned in 1921 into two entities, Northern Ireland and what was the Free State, what is now Ireland. And um, in the way Northern Ireland was created, a permanent Protestant majority was ensured, which is not a very good way or a very good understanding on which to set up a democratic, a democratic state. You don't do it so that there is a confessional majority. It is always going to lead to trouble because the confessional majority are going to punish the confessional minority. But that was baked in from the beginning, and it was set up by the British, who of course were not impartial, um, but extremely biased. And people talk about um, you know, Northern Ireland being a, you know, a, a place with a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. That was the, you know, the premise on which it was established. It would deliver a Protestant parliament for a, a Protestant people. Where did this quotation come from? I looked it up. Where was it? I mean, it had been used by various archbishops, but where was it really introduced into the body politic? Well, I can tell you. It was introduced by James Craig, replying to George Leake and Stormont in 1934. This is what James Craig said. The on member must remember that in the South, they boasted of a Catholic state. They still boast of Southern Ireland being a Catholic state. All I boast of is that we are a Protestant parliament and a Protestant state. It would be rather interesting for historians of the future to compare a Catholic state launched in the South with a Protestant state launched in the North and to see which gets on the better and prospers the more. It is more interesting for me at the moment to watch how they are progressing. I am doing my best always to top the bill and to be ahead of the South. It's like one football manager talking about another team. 
It's a very strange way to think about political organization in these kind of competitive terms. But these competitive terms are absolutely crucial to this book, Dirty Linen, which is about things that happened in Tullylish, which is the parish where Martin grew up. Let's start with just some basic facts. Where is Tullylish? What made Tullylish what it was? What is the importance of the linen industry? This book is called Dirty Linen. Just a few simple questions. Yep. Tullylish is a parish in County Down, on close to the border with County Armagh. Um, it lies between the towns of Bambridge, Lurgan, um, Portadown, Craigavon, um, a few miles south of Loch Ney, the southern shore of Loch Ney, about 20 miles south of Belfast, about 20 miles north of the border. So it lies in two triangles, um, the Linen Triangle, which stretched from roughly Lisburn across to Dungannon and down to Newry, and that was the heartland of the linen industry. I'll come back to that. It also lies in the murder triangle, in one corner of the murder triangle, which stretches roughly from Lurgan across to Dungannon again and down to Newry again. The murder triangle uh, was so christened by two priests, Father Dennis Fall and Father Raymond Murray in the mid-70s in a pamphlet. Um, and basically they identified uh, that Catholic civilians in that area were being targeted by loyalist paramilitaries, primarily the Mid-Ulster branch of the UVF. And the hypothesis went that, um, you know, they were operating in collaboration with members of the security forces. So there was a, an organization loosely called the Glenan Gang based on a farm in Glenan, which is in Armagh, maybe 15 miles from, from Tullalish. Um, and so this is an organization that is currently being investigated or has been investigated by the, the new P chief constable of the PSNI, John Boucher. Um, he spent the last five years uh, looking into these linked murders um, for which um, many members of the security forces um, have been blamed. Um, so yeah, so the importance of the linen industry in in my district. So um, the River Ban provided um, both the power um, for the mills which sprang up along its banks, but also um, the clean water was, was used to, um, to bleach the, the linen, which was then laid out in bleach greens um, along its banks. So it's funny, when I first was writing about coming from a working class background, a colleague at the Irish Times, um, uh, very Dublin, um, didn't think that there was a rural working class. And I was thinking, well, I grew up in a very rural parish, but along the banks of the River Ban between Believey uh, to the west of Banbridge, sorry, to the east of Banbridge, as far as Moy Allen at the western edge of the parish, there's something like 11 linen mills and 30 or so bleach greens. And the, the linen mill in Guildford in my parish is six stories high. It employed a thousand people. 
in Lawrencetown, my village, there was Hazelbank, which was a four-story mill, which employed several hundred people. And you had the cobbled streets, you had the mill cottages, like it was like a hovazad. So mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, there is no such thing as a rural working class, um, you know, I think that's uh, a misunderstanding um, that you can only have if you've... Well, there was no hovaz. Um, how do you explain that misunderstanding? You know, people know um, what they experienced growing up. You know, if you grow up in Dublin, that's your, you know, sphere of reference primarily. Um, I grew up in a rural part of the north, so that was that was my, um, you know, nexus of understanding. If the, you like. I mean, this is an aside we might come on to, but ooh, there does sometimes seem in this polity to be a lack of understanding about. Um, what the other side of the border is actually like. Like that's one of the real tragedies um, of partition that there has been, you know, a growing gap in understanding or even, you know, a belief or suspicion that we are, you know, uh, two nations, uh, which I don't think is true. Um, you know, my dad is from Gorey, from County Wexford. I've got family in Galway as well, whatever. And there were members of that family, of, our, of my family, that never crossed the border. And that's like a, a personal kind of tragedy, if you like. Um, but also, I kind of felt growing up in the north that we were kind of cut off from, from the south, from our, you know, our natural hinterland. Like, I very much saw myself as, as Irish. And yet, you know, say in my village, there were all these kind of desperate, tall antennae or television aerials that were sort of reaching out to the south, trying to pick up RTE um, for yeah. Gaelic football coverage, yeah. the, the voice of Mihal O'Hare, whatever. And they really were, like they were like, like, they were like kind of, you know, feelers sort of reaching out to try and connect. And I felt that we were deliberately cut off either, you know, the, the British wouldn't allow sort of the signals to be you know, boosted to, to reach the north or whatever, or or the Irish government wasn't that committed to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I think it is one of the tragedies that this, you know, this lack of understanding has kind of grown up. Another aspect of it is that, oh, the north, they're all mad up there, or they're all violent, or they're all sectarian. And yet, like I show in the history of my book, that there were kind of things that happened in the south that led to you know, atrocities committed against my Catholic community up north, for example, um, the murder, or sorry, the murder of Thomas McCurton, the Lord Mayor of Cork, and um, the man blamed for that was Oswald Swansea, who was the head of the RIC in Cork, and Colin, Michael Collins, sent a party of Southern IRA up to Lisburn, where he had been, where Swansea was posted to, to get him away from uh, the threat of a reprisal, and he was assassinated coming from church in Lisburn, as a consequence of which Catholics were burnt out of, of um, the town of Lisburn, homes, villages, etc. Similarly, there was a guy called Jared uh, Bryce Ferguson, who was head of the RIC in Munster, and he was the one who spoke, addressed to the RIC in Listowel in County Kerry, and basically said, you can shoot Shinners, Sinn Féiners on sight, and there'll be no, you know, there'll be no comeuppance for you. He was assassinated in uh, a town and country club in Cork City, um, and he was, although born in India, both his parents were from Banbridge, um, my birthplace, and they were kind of linen aristocracy on both sides, with links to the old UVF as well. And after his funeral in Banbridge, there was, again, mob attacks of every Catholic business and premises and home on the, in Banbridge town centre. So there are these kind of, 
interlocking, like, you know, the north is not separate from the south or whatever, like they're, you know, very much inter interconnected. Yeah. In, before we come to the, the, the book concentrates on the period from the 70s to the 90s, but yeah. um, there is quite a lot of content about what happened after partition to people living, uh, people who worked in the linen business and who lived in this area. Um, what was that that happened to people? So, like, or you know, this is my personal, this is a personal story as well as being the story of my parish. So, in 1920, around, around the time we were talking about when um, Ferguson was, was, was assassinated, when Swansea was assassinated, there was also the killing of a, um, a man who worked for Guildford Mill who was bringing the wages back. Um, and he was murdered. It was an armed robbery which went wrong. It, was, it wasn't political, but it was used as an excuse by local orange men to kind of drive Catholics from the workforce all along the banks of the River Ban, my grandfather included. So my grandfather, Arthur Patburn, and his, uh, his sister, uh, Mary Kate, uh, worked in a bleach green in Halls Mill, just you know, the next village to where I, where I grew up. And they were put out of work and um, what, you, what, what the process of putting them out of work? Just explain how that. So they introduced happened. this thing that um, you, if Catholics didn't sign this form denouncing or renouncing Sinn Fein um, and swearing fealty to king and country, they would be excluded from the workforce. So basically, yeah, they were they were driven out unless they were prepared to sort of you know sign away their. Would identity. people have had to turn up to work with this document? Yeah, yeah. So the vast, the vast majority refused to do so. And how is, I mean, commercial enterprises aren't allowed to determine who enters or doesn't enter their factory. So this had the sanction of the police and the sanction of local government. Um, like this is around the time of, of partition when, you know, the whole, everything was kind of up in the air, I guess. And there was like a, an unofficial coalition between the, the mill owners um, and their predominantly Protestant workforce. Um, and you also at the time, you had a bit of a, a cleansing of the RIC. A lot of um, Catholic members of the RIC were sort of being, as it became the RUC, they were sort of like they... You know, like if you if you read um, Michael Farrell's, um, is it the Orange? Yeah, arming the arming the Protestants, which is his book about um, how the North was sort of st set up and established, and he goes into a lot of detail about how, you know, the the new Northern regime, this, the Unionist regime in the North, were sort of going cap in hand to Westminster looking for money so that they could pay off Catholic members of the RIC. Like the reason the RUC became pre predominantly Protestant. It wasn't naturally like that. There were actually a lot of Catholic members of the RIC in the north from all over, like Dennis Donoghue, um, yeah, Warren um, Emma Donoghue's father. Like he grew up in Warren Point. He wrote a memoir, Warren Point. His father was in the RIC. Lots of similar examples from all over. Um, but they were sort of encouraged to leave because they weren't trusted, although they were, you know, had served effectively king and country in the RIC. Uh, they were perceived as not loyal to the new Stormont regime. Anyway, but that's getting very much into the weeds. The reason the book is called... No, but that's the culture, that's the humus out of which, I would say, the events that you describe spring. So you have this unofficial alliance between the state, the police, the legal services, and the government, mm -hmm. as opposed to the British state. And they look the other way, and things begin to happen. 
and what is happening essentially is the outing, the, the othering of Catholics. Very much so. Like, you know, I say in the book that, you know, um, Catholics in the North weren't treated like Protestants were treated in the South. I think they were treated much more like the traveling community was treated in the South. They were an underclass. They were pariahs, you know. You know, obviously there are lots of different experiences, Protestant experiences in the South, but you know, by and large, there absolutely was discrimination in terms of you know their their rights to divorce or contraception or whatever, and there was a special position for the Catholic Church in the Constitution. But you know, in truth, um, they weren't. You know, like there were there was a prosperous um, you know Protestant middle class in the South, whereas in the North, you know, Catholics were very much sort of looked down on and discriminated against um, economically in, in all sorts of ways. Um, so now, um, I can ask you, when were you born? 1967. Okay, good timing. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny you say that, like, because like mum and dad, they met in, in London. My mum's from the village where I grew up, Lawrencetown in County Down. My dad's from Gorey, County Wexford. They met in, in London in the Gresham Ballroom in the Holloway Road. Mm -hmm. a ballroom of romance in the English capital. And they moved back first to Dublin. Um, and my sister Andrea was born in the Rotunda. Um, they lived um, in, what's the name of it? Um, North Inner City, Summer, Summer, not Summer House. Um, Summer, Summer Hill. And my dad's best man was a guard from, from uh, Gorey as well. And he said to my mum, Marie, John hasn't brought you just to one of the worst streets in Dublin, he's brought you to the worst street in Dublin. But actually, you know, mum says they had a great time there and, you know, you could leave your back door open, front door open, the neighbours couldn't have been kinder. But, you know, with a small baby, whatever, she felt, you know, she would get more sort of, you know, support or whatever um, from her family. So we moved back to the village where she'd grown up uh, just in time for me to be born. In Banbridge? In, well, born in Banbridge, yeah, but I grew up in, they moved very quickly into um, uh, Miller Park, um, a newly built housing estate, predominantly Catholic in the village of Lawrencetown. And that's interesting because one of the reasons why, you know, the troubles broke out or the civil rights movement grew out of the depriving of um, decent housing to Catholics. Mm. Um, and yet, because I think the area where I grew up was, you know, safely, had a safe Protestant majority, um, there was no problem with kind of building council housing for Catholics because there was no risk of them, um, you know, becoming a majority, outvoting um, Protestants. What did your parents do? What sort of life did they have when they came back? Um, what sort of life did they give you? Yeah, pretty good life. Um, like, so mum, I'm trying to think, she was a dinner lady in my primary school, so that was a win when it came to second helpings. I used to line up at the front, get my food, and then maybe knock on the back door afterwards for, for pudding, usually. Um, <laughs> my dad, like, he worked in different places. The, the place I remember him working was Goodyear, um, so that was, you know, the American um, multinational um, which, you know, they made fan belts, tires, whatever, that was in Craig Avon. You mentioned Craig, James Craig, the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. So when they decided they were going to build a new city, a bright, brining, new, shining new city, mm. what are they going to call it? Craig Avon. You know, the modesty would overwhelm you. Um, it wasn't a success, just like Northern Ireland as a political entity wasn't a success either, because, as you say, you know, the Catholic community was not 
invited to have a fresh start, whatever. It was very much, you know, they weren't really wanted, whatever, tolerated but not accommodated is how I describe it. Um, when you were, so you were born in 67, mm -hmm. so by, well, hunger strike 81, you're, you've come into political consciousness, you've come into consciousness by then. What, how did your, how did you become aware? And when you became aware, what form did your awareness take? That you were in a strange place, yeah. a strange problem. So I think a fortnight before I started primary school, uh, the first member of my parish was killed in the Troubles. That was Joe Fagan. Um, I was, How was Mr Fagan killed? He was a lorry driver and he lived in a, a house belonging to the parish, in, which backed right on to Clare Chapel's graveyard. Um, and so he, okay, so he's a lorry driver and he was at Newry Customs Post in August 1972, um, along with another lorry driver and several um, customs officials when three IRA men walked in carrying a bomb. Whatever happened, the bomb went off prematurely, killing three IRA men, three customs officials, and Joe Fagan, and another man, Jack McCann, the other lorry driver. Um, so, as I said, um, Mary, um, one of his daughters, so he was, I think he was 28 or 29, as was his wife. They had four uh, young children. Mary was in my class, Kieran was a year above me in my sister Andrea's class, and there was two other girls, the youngest of whom had Down syndrome. So you can imagine, you know, what that is like to, to be left as a widow at the age of, you know, 28 with four young children to raise. And you were aware of... No, I was absolutely not aware. I knew that, He'd you know, killed. Mary and Kieran, you know, they didn't have a dad, their dad was dead, but I didn't know the circumstances until much later. Um, and, you know, there are several other, if I think back to, you know, my classmates now, um, like Declan Feeney was two years above me, his father was shot dead in Blairy Darts Club in 1975, two days after Declan's brother Jimmy had won an All-Ireland Senior Boxing title in the National Stadium in Dublin. Um, um, Paddy Barry was in my class. Um, he's now married to Donna Campbell, whose father, Pat Campbell, was the shop steward in Down Shoes, the largest local employer in Bambridge. Um, Pat Campbell was Catholic, obviously, um, and a kind of a pillar of the community, um, like a one-man Citizens Advice Bureau. And in 1973, um, two loyalist paramilitaries called to his door and shot him dead. One of them was Robin Jackson, who had worked in Down Shoes alongside him. And he went on to become known as the Jackal. Um, he was responsible for the Miami Shoban massacre, for the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, and many other killings, including some in my parish. Um, and yet he was never convicted of murder, even though um, Pat Campbell's widow um, identified him. Yeah, um, he was in the hall of her house. She opened the door to him, yeah. and he, he, she picked him out of an ID parade, but because it was badly um, handled by the RUC, she was badly treated by the RUC, they were able to kind of pick holes and decide that even though she'd been charged, they dropped the charges. And Colin Wallace, who worked for... British military intelligence has a cont cont contemporaneous note asking a list of people, including Jackson, could they be targeted for 
um, prosecution or whatever, and he was told to leave him alone. He'd, the charges against him had been dropped at the, at the request of RUC Special Colin branch. Wallace was told that? Yes. Yeah. By somebody um, higher up in the army? Exactly. Let, so, just just yeah. tell them who Colin Wallace was, and then we'll go back to the Bleary Darts Club. Um, Colin Wallace was, you know, he worked for British Military Intelligence, um, and he was wrongly convicted of um, an, an unrelated kind of... Um, killing him to a gay lover or something, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but he was basically stitched up and, uh, and wrongfully prosecuted and has written a book about um, his experiences. But like, so you, you wanted me to, you're really asking me, how did I come to consciousness? Well, I guess I grew up in a kind of a Catholic bubble in, a, in the predominantly Catholic village of Lawrencetown, but I went to secondary school in Bambridge, three miles away, which is a predominantly Protestant town, which is my birthplace where my mum and dad had a shop in the town. Um, and I went, I passed the 11 plus, and rather than going to Newry, which is a further 15 miles away, and a very troubled town with lots of bombs and shootings, mum and dad decided to send me to the local state grammar school, Bambridge Academy, which was predominantly Protestant. I think it was 10% Catholic, so I describe it as not so much mixed or integrated as diluted, diluted orange. And I say that because they let Catholics in, but they didn't accommodate them. You know, the Union Jack flew outside the, the front gates, you know, they played the national anthem at every opportunity, Prize Day, whatever, on Remembrance Day, whatever, they'd troop us down to the local Church of Ireland church. Um, and, you know, there's lots of kind of petty stuff went on to kind of very much make you feel that, you know, your identity was not recognised or appreciated and keep your head down. Even since I've brought out the book, it's actually unlocked other people's stories and people have been getting in touch with me. Um, there's a guy told me that, you know, he was a prize day, whatever, like, and he just, you know, he couldn't stomach the idea of standing for the national anthem because of the, abu the sectarian abuse that he'd been experiencing in the few months he'd been at the school. Um, and so he was sort of sitting there and the sports, um, the, the PE teacher came over and hit him on the head with a book. And bearing in mind this was a Remembrance Sunday service, the book can only have been the Bible or a, a hymn book. And he actually hit him so violently in the back of the head that he burst out crying. So, like, there's lots of kind of petty stuff like that there went on in, in my time at the academy. And it's funny, like, I've written about 20 or so murders, most of them, the victims being Catholic, um, and yet nobody passes any remarks. But the stuff that kind of rankles is the stuff about the school. You know, and people are sort of saying, like, I got a, a private message from a guy who's a few years above me at school saying, I'm not going to read your book. Um, and. I don't know what you think about IRA murdering scum, but you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of thinking, well, if you read the book, you'd know what I think about IRA murdering scum because I've interviewed their victims. I've interviewed Bobby Harrison's son, Robert Harrison. He was an RUC reservist who was shot dead in Guildford. Um, I've told his story. I've told the story of uh, the three TA soldiers, part-time TA soldiers who were blown up in Newry. Um, two of them survived. One of them was recruited by my father to, um, to serve in the committee of the local community centre, which is in my old primary school, um, which itself is a symbol of you know how far we've come. It's celebrated its 25th anniversary, same as the Good Friday Agreement has celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. Um, but there's this idea that you know uh, there was no prejudice or sectarianism at at my school, and how, and how could I possibly say so? And the funny thing is that one of the two mutual friends that we had on Facebook was Paula Jordan 
whose story um, I tell in the book, and which was actually picked up by the Belfast Telegraph. They ran a uh, full-page news story about it. Paula was from my primary school, or sorry, from, from Lawrencetown, my same village. She was three years above me. Um, and she wanted to become a special needs teacher. Um, she was actually very close friends with uh, the Fagans that I mentioned earlier, um, and so helped out with um, their daughter who had Down syndrome. Um, and I think that sort of sparked her interest in, um, in special needs education. She volunteered at the local special needs school in Bambridge. She even got a letter from her headmaster who had a child at that school thanking her for giving up volunteering. You know, when other kids were playing sports, she was volunteering at the special needs school. And yet, when she applied to university to become a special needs teacher, she wasn't getting any offers, even though she had better grades. She knew that she had better grades than people who were getting offers. She was able to find out because she had a, a cousin who was a teacher who knew somebody at the Catholic um, uh, Teach Training College in Belfast. Mm -hmm. um, he said, you know, what's going on? He said, I'll have a look at the file. He looked at the file and discovered that Frank Dorman, the Protestant headmaster um, at the academy, who had written her a nice letter for volunteering at his child's school, had written such a bad reference, saying that she was disruptive in class, she was a terrible truant, etc., etc. None of this was true, and therefore, you know, she didn't get a place. She had to repeat her A-levels, not for better grades at a Catholic school, but to get an honest reference. She's now, for 20 years, she's been a principal of a special needs school in Dungannon. She was appointed MBE last year. She even attended the Queen's funeral. This is a pillar of the establishment. But you know, if it happened to her, how many other people did it happen to? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, I'm just going to say one thing about Colin Wallace. He was the man who ran Clockwork Orange, which was the black ops um, counterintelligence uh, British Army um, thing in the early 70s, which was incredibly influential in a very, but not in a good way. And then, yeah, he was subsequently set up and convicted of a murder he didn't commit. Um, let's talk about the bleary, what happened, the bleary darts club, because mm -hmm. that's a very interesting, very complicated, and very telling event. Would you just describe to us Sure. Okay, so I already mentioned um, the fate of John Michael Feeney, um, who was shot dead two days after um, he had coached his son Jimmy to win an All-Ireland boxing title at the National Stadium in Dublin. Um, John Michael was a fascinating character because he was also, um, the, he just got his dream job. He was number two in the Ivy Harriers, um, which was the local hunt. And the head of the local hunt, ironically, was Brian Faulkner who was the man who introduced internment, who was the last unionist prime minister of Northern Ireland, and he had also served as the um, unionist first minister in the power sharing government uh, the year before. So sport, a bit like um, the Irish RM or whatever, it, it makes un for unlikely bedfellows. Um, so Bleary Darts Club was in an old weaver's cottage. You know, when I found that out again, I kind of, you know, I sort of, you know, my, ears pricked up or my eyes lit up because, again, it ties into the, the, the Lynn theme, like 
so much of what happened. Um, the the linen industry is a kind of like a backdrop to so much of what happened in the area. So this old damp weaver's cottage, deliberately damp, so that you know when you're spinning the 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 fibers, or whatever they were, you know they were easier to work with when they were mm. damp. So. You know, it was an old Shabin basically down an un un unlit kind of country road. You'd have to know it was there. And this is a feature also of the O'Dowd murders, which, you know, were something else I wrote about. These are places that aren't even visible from the road. So it, it brings home the intimacy and the, the suspicion of neighbours' involvement in uh, these murders because, you know, this isn't sort of targeting, you know, a busy pub on a high street that everybody knows is maybe owned by a Catholic. Like, this is sort of, you know, going out of your way to sort of um, target a place. Anyway, um, gunmen burst in and they just stood at the doorway. There was, I think, there was about 30 people inside and miraculously only three people were killed and one seriously injured because they didn't go all the way into the room. The door, I think the weekend before, they'd made the decision to move all the empty crates of beer bottles or whatever and put them behind the door. And so the door didn't swing open fully. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it could have been a complete massacre. Anyway, three Catholics were killed. The fourth person um, who was shot was actually a local Protestant. And, you know, I think he lost a forearm or whatever um, in the ferocity of, of the shooting. And, and I make the point that people like him, some people will say, well, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Whereas I, you know, I would very much make the point that somebody like that, that kind of crosses, you know, the community divide or whatever, they are the fabric that kind of held the place together. They are the mortar in, in the community which stopped the whole edifice of mm. society in the North crumbling. Um, so, um, I think we also need to emphasise that this dance club, it w not only was it in a weaver's cottage down a lane that wasn't lit, um, but it was also only on certain days of the week. It wasn't open seven days a week. It was a Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday or Thursday, yeah. Friday. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. So it was quite niche. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really, you really had to be in the know. So that's one... Thing. The other is, is that there were various other things that happened, sightings, you know, there were things around, there was a UDR patrol. Yes, there was sort of like, strange kind of... Yeah, like the sort of, the, the members had kind of come to the, you know, the club one day and discovered that somebody had broken in yeah. and had, you know, had taken some lemonade or some minerals or whatever and left a note and money sort of saying, um, you know, this is for whatever, we're just checking up, whatever. So yeah, that, that was, was probably, that, that, they thought that was soldiers. Definitely, you know, that, you know, I think the note said that it had been soldiers, whatever, investigating. And then Robin Jackson, this other guy who lived locally, this, the jackal, this serial killer, he had been spotted locally, um, you know, just before the, the shooting with traveling around with a, a man who was in the UDR, a local man. So yeah, there are, there are lots of these sort of threads of suspicion but there's other things that, you know, like one of the things that stuck in my mind um, that Declan Feeney, uh, who I went to school with, he asked Jimmy, his brother, um, you know, what he saw that night. Like Declan was only a young boy at the time. Um, and Jimmy was able to sort of say that he was able to tell the RUC the color of the gunman's trousers and the shoes that he was wearing, Chelsea boots in fact, by the light of the only available light was the muzzle flash from the gun that was killing his father. And I say, what light could be darker? 
and that was the life that he saw by for the rest of his days because Jimmy went on to become an alcoholic. He was sucked into joining the official IRA and ended up in Long Kesh and he ended up taking his own life 20 odd years later, which is a feature, you know, we're talking here again about the long tail of mm. Trouble's trauma, mm. as I call it, and suicide is something, you know, Larry McKee um, has written about this as well, like, you know, the fact that more people have taken their own lives in the North since the ceasefires, since the Good Friday Agreement, than die during the Troubles itself. Um, and towards the end of my book, I mentioned the fact that another two um, relatives, young relatives um, of victims, had taken their own lives just in the last year. Um, but like the the whole the, the purpose of my book, I guess, is you know th this isn't history in the sense that this is isn't just about what happened in the period when the troubles um, were taking place from sixty nine to ninety three. This is about how the victims, the, the children who witnessed their father's murders, uh, the parents who had to pick up the pieces after their children were murdered. This is you know, how they kind of come to terms with that, how they live their lives um, burdened with, with that terrible experience. Um, Say the O'Dowds, um, you know. So Barney O'Dowd was my milkman. That was really my 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 starting point. Um, and so you know, Barney was shot. Um, two of his sons were killed. His brother was killed. Barney survived. Barney had been my milkman, and um, I you know I have vivid memories of him in his brown shop coat sort of thing, delivering the milk. So he'd be on my doorstep every every day of my life, and then on a Saturday he'd be around collecting the money, and he'd have this big brown sort of satchel thing full of coins, mm. and he'd let you sort of put your hand in and grab a, a you know a, a handful of coins, which to me was like a treasure chest or untold riches, mm. and then so like you know for, so his shooting you know whatever about um, I was too young to really be told even what had happened to Joe Fagan, but there was no hiding, you know, what happened to the O'Dowds, like because this guy who was on your doorstep one day wasn't there the next. Um, so that was pretty devastating. And then I wrote a, a, a kind of a memoir piece for an anthology of working class writing edited by Paul McVeigh back in two or three years ago. And then that was published in the Irish Times and I'd mentioned in it what happened to the O'Dowds and Noel O'Dowd. And then after the, the murders, the family moved south, and I never saw them again, which is a bit of a call back to when I said that, you know, after what happened to my grandfather in 1920, and his sister emigrated to the States, and they never saw each other again. So again, I'm kind of drawing these kind of connections between 1920 and the, the modern troubles. Um, but Noel O'Dowd got in touch with me to tell me that, you know, Barney was still alive, would I like to meet him? And he was 98, whatever, like so. And of course, I was delighted to do so. Uh, and then he told me the story, not just of what happened um, to, to the family in the farmhouse, but also um, that after his wife, um, Kathleen, had died in just before the millennium, the following August, they made the decision that they were going to um, rebury the two boys, um, Declan and Barry, who had been shot dead and beside their mother in, in the graveyard in County Meath. And the bit that really got me was that they personally exhumed, they decided they were going to personally exhume their brother's bodies. 
And like to me, that sort of symbolizes just, you know, obviously it's an act of love, but also, you know, that's pretty, like to me, that would be, I couldn't, unimaginably traumatic to do something like that. And to me, that again is the long tail of Troubles trauma, that that's something that you would kind of want to do. Mm. And it's, it, to me, it felt like something like Greek tragedy to kind of, you know, to go back there and to not, you know, to basically not even, not even leave, you know, the, the, the graves or the corpses of your family that you would take them with you effectively. And that was the kind of the starting point because then I did a timeline. Noel, the son, he kind of became like my guide or like my ferryman, I say, like, you know, a bit like the River Styx, Sharon, except it's the River Ban. And he sort of drove me around the parish pointing out the places where people had been murdered, like the Kearns's, 200 yards down the road from, from the O'Dowd's farmhouse. But so they, the O'Dowd's were shot in January 1976. The Kearns's, um, Jared and Rory Kearns, who were at school with my brothers, they were shot dead 200 yards away, but in 1993, October 1993, their 30th anniversary has just passed. And they were shot on the occasion of their sister Roisin's 11th birthday party. So there's a family photograph of the boys um, with another brother and Roisin. Um, an hour before they were murdered. The parents went to an Irish language class in Lurgan. And then loyalist gunmen walked in the back door. They didn't even burst in, they just opened the door because this was a rural cottage. Um, you know, they did like that to Roisin. It was just around Halloween, so they kind of, Roisin thought it was maybe a prank or something. And then they walked in and they shot dead the two boys. Um, so like the, the nearness of that and yet the distance in time really struck me as well. But just as Noel brought me from here to there, like I kind of thought of it like accident black spot signs. Mm. Um, like growing up, you know, traveling down south, I was struck by, you know, going from Lawrencetown to Gorey, you'd pass at least a dozen bla accident black spot signs, which were kind of saying this is a deadly bend, but we can't afford to fix it. So we're just going to put up this sign in the hope that somebody might slow down. And like, I kind of thought, my God, like, you know, the, the parish, like a map of my parish could be these sort of black spots, except the black spots would symbolize not fatal road crashes, but sectarian murders. Mm. Um, and then I discovered that black spots, they kind of traces back to, um, you know, Long John Silver in Treasure Island. And actually the black spots were sort of taken from crumpled up pages of, are ripped out of the, the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I kind of thought, yeah, the kind of, you know, the kind of the, the literary associations of that. I guess, you know, another aspect of the book is, you know, I'm, I've been a lifelong reader, I'm book editor over the Irish Times, so I wanted to kind of, I was very conscious that this is, these are dark stories, um, but I was very conscious, I wanted to tell them in such a way that, you know, to um, have some kind of embroidery there, um, not just, you know, um, bleak and bloodied. Um, so I, you know, consciously sought literary references. And I didn't have to seek very far because, like, for example, Paul Muldoon, um, the poet, um, his father um, during wartime grew flax just the other side of Portadown. And Muldoon has written several poems about. Um, the linen industry, about um, the Cowdies, who are one of the local linen families, for example, on their impossibly high horses. Um, Seamus Heaney, obviously, like the, the epigraph to the book comes from uh, Lint Water, um, which was published in the TLS, a Heaney poem 
from 1965 using uh, the pollution caused mm -hmm. by the linen industry um, as a kind of a metaphor, the stench of sectarianism. Linen or flax is steeped in water, again, to break the fibers in a kind of a lint pool or a flax hole. And over time, that becomes like a kind of a stench. And he uses that um, as a metaphor for the stench of sectarianism, which has stained the North um, throughout its history. Um, but also some beautiful stuff, like there's a beautiful sculpture in Bessbrook um, Linen um, Pond. It's like Excalibur, it's like a kind of a silver um, metal sort of stem with the blue flax flower at the top. Um, likewise, in Lurgan, there's a linen bleachers statue at the center of the town, which, you know, it's a, a man and a woman, and together they hold up a linen cloth. The idea being, you know, you, know, you need two people working together to kind of keep the fabric off the ground sort of thing. Do you think that, um, no, before I ask you that question I was going to ask about now, just briefly, who is or was Robin Jackson? Um, he was... He's on the outskirts. He's sort of... He, he's yeah, I didn't want to really dwell too much on a murderer. This is very much a victim-centred book. Sure. I wanted to tell the stories of victims and their families, but at the same time, it was... I could not write about Robin Jackson because, you know, he was responsible for so many of the murders. And there is this kind of backdrop to, like, Anne Cadwallader had done a book called Lethal Allies, and, um, you know, which told the story of collusion and, you know, loyalist paramilitaries working in tandem with members of the security forces. I wanted that to be there, but I didn't want to foreground it. I wanted to draw people in by the, the very human stories of, of how people cope with trauma and tragedy. Like, you know, I was also writing from the point of view of somebody, you know, who personally was bereaved. Like, my wife passed away 10 years ago from cancer, which is very different, obviously, to the complicated grief of violent death, of unnecessary death. But at the same time, it sensitized me to other people's grief and the understanding that you know bereavement isn't something that you get over after a few months no. or a year. It's a lifelong learning. It divides your life into a before and after. Robin Jackson, he was from Donachmoor, which is a village um, between Bambridge and Newry. He worked in Down Shoes as a, you know, um, a laborer in a factory. Um, he was sacked for fighting with a local Catholic in 1970. He joined the UDR in, I think, August 1973, two months before he murdered um, Pat Campbell. He was a serving member of the UDR when he carried out that murder. He also was, by his own admission, a member of the UDA. In fact, um, he was a leading member of the UVF. He actually um, was blamed for murdering um, his brother-in-law, who was also a loyalist paramilitary, and at least one other leader of the UVF. He seemed to be very well informed about who was informing on him, because, yeah. you know, that he, the reason he killed them was because um, they were suspected informers. So one can speculate as to where he was getting that information from. But it is, to my mind, outrageous the fact that you know, he was able to, he died, I think, a month after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, or the referendums in 19, 
98. So it was almost like you know his era was over, his era of being able to murder um, Catholic civilians without any repercussions uh, was over with uh, the coming of the peace process. We're coming close to the end of our time, so maybe somebody in the audience has a question. And there's a microphone. Yes, say the question and then I'll use my RADA training to rebroadcast it. <laughs> My question is, what sense have you, with regard to where you came from, um, with how the Good Friday Agreement has settled? Do you feel that the, generate, the upcoming generations get it? Or is there still the deep sectarian divide and suspicion? And how would you say it? Like, yeah, separation. Is there a sense of things coming together on a on a micro scale in, in villages and in towns? Um, thanks. Like, there are positive aspects. Like, I, I think I mentioned there, uh, my old primary school, which is a Catholic primary school, is now a community centre serving Lawrencetown, which is predominantly Catholic, the townland of Tullalish, which is predominantly Protestant, and Lenaderg, which is a predominantly Protestant village. So they're all, they've all kind of come together, and they have, um, you know, community events that bring people together. Serving on the committee is Jim Bell, who, you know, has survived, um, who, who still feels the effects um, of the, the bombing in, in Newry, in which killed, um, uh, he worked for BT, as did Trevor May and Alan Gurley. So Trevor May was killed in that bomb explosion. Alan and Jim survived. Um, they were all in the TA, they also worked for BT. Um, so, like, my dad actually recruited Jim Bell to serve on the local community centre. So that's a kind of a symbolic, if you like, of, um, you know, Jim wanting to sort of put something back into the community, build community bonds and solidarity. I think that was very positive. Um, you know, Norman Kerr, who's a local farmer, Presbyterian farmer, he's, his farm has this fabulous view over the Ban Valley, um, looking down over Lawrencetown and the River Ban, um, and he told me things that, you know, like he was in, involved in a prayer group with the local Catholic priest, and um, he would kind of come and he'd say, here's some Orsi buns, Rice crispy buns. So like little details like that, that kind of, you know, um, you know, make you realize that people are coming together and they are working together. And he told me this lovely thing that the Catholic priest, the Church of Ireland minister and the Presbyterian minister, they would have this dawn light service at Lisleyard Fort, a very ancient kind of, you know, structure in the parish at Easter. So these are all positives. I think there's also, of course, negatives. For example, there was a recent survey, I think a year or two ago, um, it was actually when I was writing the book, and it said that the majority of Catholics agreed with, in the North, agreed with um, Mary Lou MacDonald, who said that, you know, the, the violence of the IRA was inevitable and possibly justified, I can't remember the detail. And, you know, I don't believe that at all, and I think, you know, 
if you live through the troubles, the vast majority of Catholics in the North didn't believe that. You know, they voted for the SDLP far more than they voted for Sinn Féin. So I think what you're now seeing is a generation that didn't grow up, or generations, in fact, that didn't grow up with the violence, who didn't have the experience of knowing what the North was like before the violence broke out, and they're maybe sort of buying into a myth which I personally don't believe is true. And I kind of say, you know, if it was worth it, where are we today compared to where we were before all this started? Um, and I don't think we're really that far forward in terms of closer to United Ireland. I think, you know, it entrenched the border, the IRA's campaign of violence. And, you know, talking to, you know, people like Robert Harrison, whose father, Bobby, was the RUC reservist who was murdered in the, on the high street of the village where he was born, grew up, and died. Um, I, you know, I totally understand why he would be so bitter at what, at, you know, what was done to his father. Um, I, you know, it's totally unjustifiable in my view. Um, you know, I think broadly, um, you know, post Good Friday Agreement, we were on a good path. I personally regret the fact that, you know, the. The, the center it didn't like the center didn't hold if you like that the Ulster unionists and the SDLP um, who I would see as more broadly progressive forces in the north they were you know basically outflanked by the more hardline uh, Sinn Féin on one side DUP on the other which I think brought us to this impasse where you had you know you had people sharing power but not actually you know working together. And then Brexit, of course, was a huge spanner in the works. You know, on that I would blame primarily on the DUP. Uh, it was so obvious to me, it was obvious to most people that that was going to be hugely damaging to the fabric in the north. Um, you know, and the, you know, nothing drives me madder than complaining about the protocol when, you know, the protocol is what where we ended up because of the DUP. First of all, championed Brexit, which was always going to be hugely divisive, and then blocked every compromise along the way which left us as nothing with no alternative other than the protocol um, so you know i hope that um, we can kind of find a way out of that impasse but you know if we don't find a way out of that impasse the only future i can see is um, a speed up towards a, a united a reunited ireland so one final short mini question <laughs> So the, the lady in white, the woman in white. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious, the, the, this is a very short question, just got to articulate it correctly. I'm interested in, in your way of writing about the, the, you know, this period of history. Yeah. Um, it's been interesting for me, given my age and having kind of lived through that as many of us here would have, you know, from a distance, from Dublin, um, to see now the impact being explored across various different media, you know, theatre, writing, whatever, um, films and whatever. And so it is really good to see these books coming out and I admire you for having written it and I'm midway through and it's very powerful. I'm curious, as a writer, was it hard for you to find the correct treatment for the subject, and was it a hard book to write? I mean, there's a lot of research in it, obviously. There's also personal. So I'm just curious, as a writer, how did you come at this, and how did you choose the direction you'd take it in? Um, I guess it's kind of wearing different hats, I guess. Um, I'm coming at it as a local person, so I'm not kind of a journalist 
from the Irish Times in Dublin descending, parachuting into this parish. I'm from there, so I think that gives me a kind of, a, not, not authority, but kind of access or it's intimate in a, in a way that it wouldn't be if it was written by an outsider. I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to are people that I went to school with or people that um, my family know, my parents know. So that kind of, and I guess that gives a, a kind of an extra sort of level of responsibility as well. Like I was very careful writing it. Like, you know, I didn't want to be the new um, Brinsley McNamara writing Valley of the Squinting Windows and becoming a pariah in his own parish. You know, I want, I don't live there anymore, but my parents do. I've got loads of cousins, aunts and uncles still there. I didn't want to be, you know, writing some kind of a expose or some awful thing, whatever. Um, not that there was the material there to do that anyway, but I very much wanted to write in a, in a respectful, sensitive way. Um, like I said, you know, I was coming from a place of personal bereavement, so I think I was interested in maybe things that maybe other journalists mightn't have been so interested in, in terms of how you remember, how you commemorate, um, and, and just exploring, you know, long-term long grief and, and bereavement, I guess. Then there's kind of like the literary side as well. Like again, coming from a kind of a literary background, you know, I grew up member of two libraries, three if, if you if you include the summer mobile library. Um, that was important to me to kind of um, have that aspect kind of quite prominent in it as well. Like because I wanted sort of like you know, there's a lot of goodness in the north, and also there's a lot of riches in terms of culture and all the rest of it. So I wanted that to be part of it. Um, there's probably lots more I could say. I didn't find, like, you know, parts of it I find hugely moving, like, you know, there's bits like where Donna Campbell is writing about, or telling me about how she had this box of fur. Sorry, need to, need to wrap it up. Like, there's bits that sort of move me to tears, even reading it five, fifth or sixth time, whatever, like, so I think, you know, the personal connection is, is, is core to it. It's a beautiful book. So we've managed, in terms of literature, to touch on Muldoon, Heaney, and Brinsley McNamara. <laughs> Only a genius could do that. Would you please show your appreciation of this genius? And thanks also to Carlo Gabler for a terrific interview. 